Welcome to the Talking Tall Rounds series, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute at Cleveland Clinic. I'm Dr. Tamana Singh. I'm the, one of the co-directors for our Sports Cardiology Center, and I'm excited to uh, provide an introduction to our center as well as uh, introduce you to an exciting case and, um, and our multidisciplinary approach to that case management. I'm also thrilled to be here with my new co-director, Dr. Michael Emery, who just recently joined us, who you will meet, a, meet later uh, uh, this morning. So let's go ahead and quickly get started. I'd like to introduce Dr. Travis Howard, who is our cardiology fellow, and he will introduce our case for this morning. Good morning. Uh, thank you all for tuning in. As Dr. Singh mentioned, my name is Travis Howard. I'm one of the general cardiology fellows here. I'll be giving a brief case presentation to uh, provide somewhat of a background and foundation for this week's tall round. So let's jump right in. We have a 37-year-old male, no prior cardiac history, developed chest tightness, jaw pain, and nausea one hour into his routine Saturday morning run. Symptoms progressed, so he presented to his local urgent care. Past medical, medical history notable for depression, no past surgical history, no family history of CAD or sudden cardiac death. As mentioned in the title, he's a marathon runner, runs 50 miles per week, no drugs, alcohol, or tobacco. Only home medication has been the vaccine. Upon presentation to urgent care, EKG demonstrated ST depressions in multiple leads, so he was triaged to the emergency department. In the ED, he had a cardiac arrest due to pulses VT with ROSC after defibrillation, and he was sent for urgent left heart cath. I don't have the cine films, but his pathology is apparent even on these still frames. You can see in the top right, this is diacetyl. He has a severe uh, lesion, is distal LAD. They performed IVS, demonstrated stable plaque, IFR is 0.86, and so a drug-looting stent was placed. On the bottom right, you can see systole. He has a dynamic cornea obstruction consistent with myocardial bridging, and that was not intervened upon that day. Unfortunately, he continued to have chest pain, so he was referred to Cleveland Clinic for further management. Initial study performed here is a dubutamine PET. You can see the non-gated imaging on top, and the red arrows mark, or I should say highlight an area of uh, mild LAD territory ischemia. Next, at a cornea CTA, you can see on the left sagittal plane, a uh, long segment of intramyocardial LAD with a distal uh, stent there, and then on the right is just a 3D representation to further highlight this. And then lastly, he had a cornea angiogram. This is our uh, myocardial bridging protocol, which Dr. Gorbel will touch on a little bit later, but on the left is his resting images. You can see evidence of the myocardial bridging. IFR at rest was 0.94. On the right is peak stress with dibutamine and atropine. IFR is around 0.75 with normalization pullback across the proximal edge of the myocardial bridging. So clearly a hemodynamically significant lesion. Uh, given that, his ongoing symptoms and his desire to continue exercising, he underwent LAD and roofing with placement of a distal vein graft with an uncomplicated post-op course. And he just had his follow-up cornea angiogram a few weeks ago. On the left, you'll see native cornea artery injection, the LAD is not fully apparent because of um, competitive flow. And you can see on the right here with injection of the vein graft, he has backfilling LAD and no apparent myocardial bridging. And this was confirmed on hemodynamic assessment with an IFR of 0.94 at rest and peak stress. And so uh, he was actually counseled that he could return to exercise. He actually completed a half marathon last week, was asymptomatic, and did quite well. Next what we'll do is we're going to shift the focus a little bit more towards um, the management of athletes, now that we've already discussed the diagnosis, the surgical management, the role of intervention, um, and how we as sports cardiologists can really contribute to um, helping our athletes and advocating for them to get back into their sport of choice. 
And so we've already reviewed uh, what we do with respect to uh, surgical repair for myocardial bridging, but I did want to bring up our 2015 guidelines um, that we have from the AJACC. So typically when we do see an athlete asymptomatic or symptomatic with bridging, um, as has already been mentioned, if they are asymptomatic, we do still want to see whether or not we can provoke myocardial ischemia on stress testing because these are high-stakes individuals. And if we don't see any ischemia, then typically we recommend that they have no restriction to competitive sports participation. If there is any evidence of myocardial ischemia or if they have had a prior MI, as in the patient that we've presented today, um, there's two mainstay categories that we can utilize with respect to how we treat them. First line recommendation is beta blockers. However, as uh, sports cardiologists, we are quite aware of the limitations that beta blockers can pose on actual exercise intensity, how athletes feel, and also with respect to competition um, with regards to whether or not they're even allowed to be on them. And so if we do choose medical management and athletes' goals are modified uh, in this regard, then our recommendation is that they proceed with low, moderate, dynamic, and static uh, intensity sports. If they do go forward with surgical resection or stenting, and we've discussed the difference in the value of resection over stenting, then for that initial six-month window post-repair, we do recommend that they specifically stay in line with proceeding with low-intensity sports. Now, these guidelines essentially mirror those that were recently put out by the European Society of Cardiology that we also look at um, from just last year, um, where, again, in individuals that are asymptomatic with no evidence of uh, myocardial ischemia, no provocation of exertional ventricular arrhythmias, um, we do not restrict them um, because there's little evidence of any actual exercise-induced harm. Um, and then again, from a medication standpoint, should we choose to go that route, beta blockers are the typical mainstay for which we then also put that in line with low-intensity sports participation. If they do fail medications, or again, if they choose to go through surgery, um, the same recommendation holds with respect to low-intensity participation for six months. So when I talk about low-intensity, I've brought up the word static and dynamic, and basically these two terms correlate to um, both the pressure and the volume challenges, respectively, that are seen with exercise exercise. And this three by three plot that you can see on the right shows our attempt to um, put specific sport types within categories. And that shade of red to this purplish blue hue is meant to um, show that there is some overlap with respect to sports having both a pressure challenge component as well as a volume challenge component. So when I was alluding to low intensity static and dynamic sports participation, if you take a look at that highlighted bottom left quadrant there, that typically relates to sports such as yoga or golf, things that really don't require much pressure and volume challenge on the heart. Uh, once these athletes have uh, gone through that six-month period of low-intensity sports participation, we can then move forward with these functional assessments, albeit whether non-invasive or invasive strategies to see whether or not they are truly having absolutely no myocardial ischemia and therefore can participate in, in competitive sports. And so we've discussed the roles of um, PET stress. We've discussed the role of IOFAR um, with both Dr. Kramer and Dr. Gobril, respectively. Um, so I just wanted to highlight those with respect to you know, those being two very 
uh, important components with respect to individuals returning to sport. Um, so from a structural standpoint, echocardiography is, is one modality that we nearly use on all athletes when we're uh, evaluating them for return. And then the other thing I wanted to bring up was rhythm monitoring. You know, I had alluded to the fact that one of our roles as sports cardiologists is making sure that our athletes are not at risk for sudden death. There is that association with bridging, and so we want to make sure that there's no provocation of ventricular arrhythmias even after um, the ischemia has been addressed. One modality of stress testing that we have not discussed today that as sports cardiologists we really highlight is the cardiopulmonary exercise test referred to as metabolics here at the clinic. And it's a fantastic tool not only to um, allow for us to assess myocardial ischemia, but to use as a modality to provide training guidelines for our athletes that are very sport specific. So CPETs are basically an assessment of inhaled oxygen and eliminated carbon dioxide um, during physical stress. We are able to see um, how well the cardiopulmonary system works, whether there's any neuromuscular deficits. Um, it's very useful for discriminating some nonspecific uh, symptoms, such as exertional dyspnea. And um, I had mentioned that we can use various modalities. As sports cardiologists, we always want to exercise athletes to their ultimate max intensity in a form or a sport that they are used to where they can actually truly put out their best effort. Um, and so we use treadmills, we've used bikes, uh, we've used indoor rowers, and there's even a location um, internationally where they have a swimming pool for swimmers. And so in our mindset, we want to create the ideal environment to put that competitive athlete um, uh, really in a mindset of, of going all out so we can truly prove that there is no ischemia. And so here's a schematic of what a cardiopulmonary exercise test looks like with a mask um, um, that is, is worn to measure gas exchange. And one other point about cardiopulmonary testing that I wanted to bring up was the importance of the type of protocol. Obviously, the modality is important, but we specifically prefer a RAMP protocol over the Bruce protocol because it doesn't allow for this equilibration that you can see when you have that uh, stepwise approach and increase in intensity and um, uh, incline that you see with the Bruce versus the ramp. And what does this mean? It means that we have a closer uh, estimated oxygen consumption or VO2 to a measured one versus the Bruce protocol, which typically overestimates oxygen consumption. And so this is just a schematic of uh, four of the nine plots that we typically obtain from metabolic testing. We're able to see aerobic efficiency, which is the amount of oxygen required to perform work. We're able to get a measure of ventilatory efficiency, which is the amount of minute ventilation required to eliminate CO2. Um, and the uh, better your ventilatory efficiency, really the better your functional capacity. And the bottom left plot allows for us to really see that nice chronotropic response uh, to exercise, as well as the increase in oxygen consumption um, and how they fare based on age and gender. Uh, predictions. And then finally, we're able to see kind of the whole picture with respect to oxygen consumption increasing, the increase in carbon dioxide elimination, and the point where they cross, which is um, the point that we call our anaerobic threshold. Now, these plots and these parameters really do help us not only in evaluating ischemia, um, we can uh, look at things like an oxygen pulse, which is a surrogate for a stroke volume to see that. But uh, as I had alluded to, as a sports cardiologist, we can use this information to provide heart rate training parameters, um, to provide guides for when they're trying to uh, do work within their aerobic metabolic state versus their anaerobic state, if they're doing lactate threshold work. So there's a lot more information from this stress modality than we could get from other non-invasive tests. 
Um, we've discussed invasive functional assessment with Dr. Gobriel already, but I really wanted to highlight this because we do not talk about the utility of IFR in our current guidelines, um, most recent being obviously 2015. And so, uh, as she had alluded to, you know, this is a great uh, modality to interrogate dynamic stenoses, uh, where we utilize dobutamine and atropine for both ionotropic and chronotropic augmentation. And in my personal opinion, I think despite that procedural risk, particularly with the protocol that Dr. Grobel is using, I think it might actually become a favorable modality for high-stakes individuals, because there are times when even though we think we're pushing our athletes to their max effort, which is measurable on a metabolic stress, um, we may not we may still miss that mark of actually provoking myocardial ischemia. And I think, you know, IFR is a very exciting modality to investigate um, for these specific athlete patients. And so ongoing utilization uh, and demonstration of the effectiveness of IFR stress protocols, I think, may contribute to the changes in our current guidelines. And as Dr. Kramer had mentioned, I think there's still, you know, an incredible role for using PET stress as well. With respect to approach to training, as sports cardiologists, we really try to personalize our exercise, quote unquote, prescriptions and training plans, which again are going to be very sport dependent, age dependent, dependent upon their level of competition, as well as any comorbidities that exist. And one area for exploration that I think you know is, is quite novel is the role of precision medicine as a guide for athletic training. Um, and I, this is you know a, a very new field. I think precision medicine in itself is is quite novel, um, but really investigating how it can correlate to training is exciting. Uh, and then finally, shared decision making is a huge component of our counseling, um, and we utilize this model, um, which is a very specific approach for counseling athletes, because we really want to avoid that traditional binary and paternalistic approach. Um, it's, it's very important for us to align with our athlete patients, help them manage any grief that they may have um, when they are going through a period where they cannot participate in a sport that's really their livelihood um, or that really adds to their quality of life. And so we do our due diligence to review all of our clinical outcomes data um, to acknowledge our areas of uncertainty so that they really have all the tools to make the best decision for themselves. Um, and then we also want to make sure we understand their belief system and how much they comprehend. Um, and uh, we also want to acknowledge the role of sports participation in just promoting healthy living, emotional, and cognitive development. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Like what you heard? Visit Tall Rounds online at clevelandclinic.org tallrounds and subscribe for free access to more education on the go.